You're listening to the HR Happy Hour Show with hosts Steve Bowes and Trish McFarlane. Since 2009, the HR Happy Hour Show has been bringing you thought leaders, workplace and technology experts, academics, and more to take on the most important and interesting topics impacting work, human resources, technology, and the workplace. Learn more and listen to all the show archives at www.hrhappyhour.net. Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show. My name's Steve Bose. Great to be with you. I am joined by, of course, Trish McFarland. Trish, how are you today? Hey, I'm good. I'm in the middle of a snow day. Well, not See, not like a work snow day, but like a snow day snow day. Normally, this time of year, I start regaling listeners with the Western New York winter w- weather reports, but I feel right. like you've, you've taught me today from early we- reports. Let me tell you why. That's why I said it, because I we don't get snow in St. Louis. If we get one snow day a year, it's always in February, and it's because of ice usually. This is legit. I'm talking like at least six to seven inches of the big, huge, like feathery, powdery, wet, heavy snow that is perfect for like sledding and snowmen and ice sports and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's been good. There are two great snowfalls of the year, uh, the first one always, and then the one that happens on Christmas Eve, if you're lucky enough to get one, and that's it. Every other one, I'm done with. I I don't want (laughs) want any part of any other. So, uh, well, that sounds like fun. Enjoy the snow. Um, Well, uh, can I say, though, it's kind of a bad day because I was supposed to be picking up um, a new car today. Ah, yeah, don't do that. There is literally no way, like right after this recording, I need to call them and say, there's absolutely no way I'm going to come do that on today. They can actually keep that car another day or two to, you know. Yeah. Let it, let it, don't, don't get it out dirty in the snow. Keep it, uh, keep it pristine for another day or two. There must be something about this day because I know you're not on Facebook, but Facebook has a thing where it'll bring, you know, every day you can see your memories from years past. Literally on this day, I'm trying to forget. Ago, I'm trying to forget just about everything. No, this is weird. This day, four years ago, I bought basically the same car, same color, same interior, same everything. This is just a newer model. Weird that I did it on the same day. I had no idea. And and that was the last time we actually had big snow in November. Wow, was that day? That is wild, wild stuff, Trish. Well, good. Enjoy that. Enjoy it. It's my new car buying day. I have nothing interesting to report like that. I will say this, though. Thanks, of course, to our show sponsor, Virgin Pulse, www.virginpulse.com, sponsoring the show since 1984. We thank them for all their support. And just, ah, the show's been going great. In fact, Trish, our problem now is we've recorded about a half a dozen shows, and we just need to get around to posting them. But great shows coming up. Uh, (laughs) Plenty of great shows in the hopper coming soon, Fast and Furious. And stuff yes. that's out there already. Trish, you did some great shows at Oracle Open World. We've got a show from Ceridian coming up. And um, I got a, I have a research on the rock show I need to post from Madeline Lorano I recently got uh, received in my inbox. And uh, plenty more to come. So uh, thank you, everybody, for all the support and for listening to the show. We're going to be uh, charging on to the end of the year. We are starting to book shows out for Q1 2019. So if you have an idea, a topic, a guest, et cetera, you'd like us to consider you can email us or tweet us at HR Happy Hour or send an email to me at Steve at H3HR.com. Our Alexa show is still there. I've been posting about once a week or so, and uh, we'll try to keep that going as well through the end of the year. So we have a special show today, Trish. We have a very special guest, friend of the show, yeah. host on the HR Happy Hour podcast network as well, our friend Jason Lauritsen, a, a new not a new author, a repeat author of a new book that we'll be talking about today. 
called Unlocking High Performance. Let me give a quick bio of Jason. If you, uh, I've got to switch over here. A lot of things happening here at HR Happy Hour HQ, Trish. Jason Lordson, if you don't know, and I'm sure you do, he's a keynote speaker, author, and consultant. He's an employee engagement and workplace culture expert whose goal is to challenge you to think differently. He's a former corporate HR executive, and he has dedicated his career to helping leaders build organizations that are good for both people and profits. Among his professional experience, he led the research team for Quantum Workplaces, Best Places to Work program. In this role, he had the opportunity to study the employee experience at thousands of organizations to understand what the best workplaces in the world do differently. He's also the co-author of the book, Social Gravity, Harnessing the Natural Laws of Relationships. Please welcome to the show from what I imagine is cold as well, Omaha, Nebraska, Jason Lawrenson. How are you today? I am fabulous, and I actually was shocked to hear that it snowed like that in St. Louis because normally St. Louis wins in the Omaha versus St. Louis weather competition. <laughs> yes. But today in a couple of hours, I will be walking my kids home from school because it's going to be a beautiful 55 degrees what? and sunshine here. That's so, so crazy. It's all good. We're winning today. You know what, though? For If you don't have snow very often, like actually, it, we kind of view it as a win. You can tell I'm excited. Like this I, doesn't happen. So I, I can tell. We had some snow in October before Halloween, and it was disgusting. Yeah, uh, I just way too early. I'm with all right. Steve. Well, you can. I just. I just. We can learn more about all of these topics on my other podcast, uh, <laughs> Weather Patterns Today. So we'll, I'll be recording that later. I encourage fair, you guys to fair, subscribe. Fair. Jason, new book. Unlocking High Performance. It is out. We have determined it is out. Amazon, all the places you get books, of course. We'll give, we'll we'll share the links as well in the show notes. But let's talk about this. Uh, first of all, this book is huge. It's 240 pages plus or so. A huge, just a huge project. What sat you down and said, hey, I, I think I want to do this. What was the motivation behind creating this book, Unlocking High Performance? You know, I wish I could I wish I could tell you that it was like this burning desire to put this message into the world and, you know, something sort of noble like that. But I would be I would be lying um, because as much as I do, you know, as much as I I feel like there's really important stuff in there and I am motivated to get that out there. The reason I wrote the book when I wrote the book was, you know, mainly because my wife told me it needed to happen um, but but largely it was seizing <laughs> it was seizing an opportunity. Um, we uh, I I had been thinking about a book for a while, and a you know the the acquisitions editor from Kogan Page landed in my email box with a simple question like, "Hey, have you been thinking about you know writing a book?" And um, I said yes, or I'd been I said yeah, I've been thinking about it, but you know, hadn't really gone any far, any very far. And so we just started a conversation and that evolved into an outline and a proposal. And then they sent me a contract, which sort of scared the bejesus out of me at the time. But, uh, and, and I wasn't kidding about my wife. My wife is my business partner for those people that don't know this. Okay. When we got this, we got this contract in, I'm looking at it and it's got it like a real deadline you know, they're going to expect me to actually finish it. And yeah, she looked at me and said, yeah, I think you should sign it that way. Yeah. 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 She's like, I think you should sign it because otherwise you're not going to get it done. And so, so we jumped on it. And, and so at the time, that's why 
I'm really glad I did, and I'm really proud of the book, and I'm glad it's out there. But that's how that's how it actually happened, and you know, it's an investment, and in, I like to speak, and books help you get out there and speak more. So yeah, that's the honest too, though, answer. I think that it's such. Um, I don't know. First reaction might be like, oh, you know, th there must be other books out there on performance management. I'm sure there are, but I think it's interesting that it actually coincides with a time where. Um, just some of the recent research that I've been doing and that I've even seen come out from like Sierra Cedar, it's it's really coming back to the forefront in terms of actual spend versus something that, you know, there are lots of, of HR related topics or people topics that are being talked about, but there isn't a lot of money being spent there right now. And so I think it's it's actually very timely that you happen to be putting out now when this is where organizations are back to sort of investing in. Um, both in time and money. So it, it just kind of fits perfectly with the what the industry needs right now. Well, and I think it's, I mean, the the reason it's packaged the way that it, that it ended up being about performance management is because we felt like, I think both my publisher saw that there was a gap in terms of content in the market. And I felt like, you know, my message, you know, my I wanted to write a book about employee engagement. It would have had an engagement title on it probably had we started if it had been up to me. But as we got deeper into it, we realized that with this transition that's happening and organizations realizing that their current practices are so broken, they start looking for answers. And we wanted to have an answer that wasn't just like, you know, you need to go buy a better mousetrap, but like we need to really rethink work and what this this issue is, because performance management isn't about a tool or approach. It's a it's a systems level problem that we need to solve. And that's what the book is, is hopefully going to help people figure out. Jason, this book is really interesting and it, it it's in depth. And one of the things that I appreciated the most, I think, about it or, or among other things was kind of you took a step back towards the beginning of the book and, and kind of look back into history and look back into management thinking and management theory. And, you know, you reveal and it's, it's just very clever how you did this. You reveal that, hey, a lot of what organizations are still doing today comes from management theories and studies and research that were done in the 1910s and 1920s. And and many organizations are still kind of holding on to those kinds of practices and and. and and methodologies for, I'd love for you before we get into some of the details around kind of really making performance management more effective today, I'd love for you to comment a little bit about kind of why do you think that is? Why do you think some organizations are so rooted in these kind of past practices and, and, and quote unquote best practices, if you will? Wow. That's a big, that's, that's a big question. Um, th so the, the best practices, I think, the whole best practice consideration I'm going to put aside for a minute because I think, you know, the reason we're fascinated with best practices is because we think it's lower risk, right? It takes the risk out of a decision if I can look around and say, oh, well, these other places are doing it, even though that takes the risk out of it, but often it's the wrong answer because it's not context specific to my problem. And so so that 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 we can dive deeper into that if you'd like. But as far as the history part, the part I found fascinating is that I, I like to rail against the fact that we're still running a playbook that was written 100 years ago. And it's a perfect example of, of the brokenness of best practices because 100 years ago, well, it's more than 100 years ago. I mean, it's probably it goes back close to 150 years ago. But as industrialization was taking root and all these people were moving from the farm into the city to, to work in these big new factories, um, the working conditions were atrocious. Like people were, I mean... We think, you know, we talk about bad work today, but I mean, these are people like 
it was killing people and kids right. were being worked for you know hours and and so that's what that's where labor unions took root right to bring some balance because there was no power balance there was no the the worker had no voice and so the labor unions came together to create some balance and start negotiating with ownership to create conditions that actually worked for people that were safe and um and and through that they started negotiating labor contracts and that became how work was organized that became how you know that that was the balance and so there were the contract was what set the conditions and on both sides of that then you had both the organization and the labor union their main focus was holding the other accountable to the contract well the it, interestingly, then, as we got to the 1920s and 30s is when early HR took root. Personnel, the idea of personnel, the idea of HR, the early predecessors rose up essentially to ensure compliance. It was to make sure that the organization was complying with the labor union or the expectations of labor contract. And so we built all of these processes around that ideal, and we've never stepped back to reevaluate that. Even as contracts have gone away and the market has shifted power just economically to workers, we never broke free of that work as a contract model, and everything is still really oriented towards compliance. And so that's, that's the root of the problem that we are still wrestling with today. And it's interesting how like these kinds of uh, these practices that you mentioned, these practices that are in many cases 100, over 100 years old, led into what we think of or thought of for a very long time as um, performance management, right? Because these things, the, you, compliance was a huge element, I agree, of, of how uh, the first organizations kind of thought about HR or personnel, whatever we're calling it. But there was also an element of kind of performance management as well that came from those. That, and many of those performance management practices also came from those very early uh, theories, right, around how yep. do we get employees to perform the best. I'd love for you to comment just a little bit about how how history kind of informed a lot of performance management, particularly into, say, the 50s and 60s and even still today. Yeah, well, they, the... I mean, performance grew out of the whole concept of of performance. It, ironically, when you look back, like the early kind of formal performance practices were born in government and military. But even prior to that, there were, you know, it really was the idea of like this, there's this contract and there were two underlying ideas or two underlying kind of forces driving it. You had you had the contract itself, which was, you know, listen, we have this contract with the with the union, so we're going to create these conditions that you've asked for, but we're going to make darn sure that you're living up to your end, right, as employees. Right. If we're going to do all these things for you, like create a safe working environment and other ridiculous things like that, we're going to expect you to show up and work and do your stuff. And so they wanted a way of making sure we were, you know, holding that together. But the other part of it was this whole, you know, um, sort of that era, the Winslow era of, uh, of thinking about workers needing to be coerced and sort of micromanaging down to the, the task level, that we need to be prescriptive. And then the manager's job was essentially to measure your performance on a moment-by-moment -moment basis against the script, right? So that's where then performance management kind of got, or uh, micromanagement sort of was born out of that. And then performance management is just really a formal extension of micromanagement in a lot of ways because it's very, um, you know, very, very specific and prescriptive and, and very um, tactical right. in terms of are you checking those boxes? And so and then for whatever reason, even as even as management theory started to change, that was so I mean, we'd had 50, 60, 70 years of that being the backbone of our 
management process, it was really hard to break free from that. It still is today yeah. in a lot of organizations. So one of the things I think that that ties directly to Jason is, you know, when I think back to maybe earlier in my HR career, um, employee engagement started to becoming something that we were talking about and didn't know much about. I know that's an area where you're not only very passionate, you're also an expert in in working with organizations on that very thing. Can you kind of talk about like maybe, you know, from the 90s and 2000s to kind of where we are today, how does how does that then grow out of this larger performance management view to where the companies kind of shifted into into their thinking more around what would actually engage people versus that just here's your contract you do this we do that yeah the well the the engagement movement yeah we're probably you know 25 years or so into that conversation now of of the idea of engagement but we it, but that really grew out of early work around measuring employee satisfaction and employee sentiment and employee opinion and all of that evolved. We eventually gave it this name of engagement. Mm -hmm. But what we found, I think, over the years and what we've seen in that research is that it, when we started actually going and asking you know, questions of employees and studying what was going on and what actually impacted their level of engagement or performance in the workplace, um, it had nothing. It sounded and looked nothing like a contract. It sounded like things like feeling valued and knowing that someone cared about me and trusting the people I work for and work with and feeling appreciated and all of these things, which are relational constructs. And so I think what what engagement has taught us is that work for the employee needs it. it, it they experience work much more like a relationship than they do like a contract or any sort of transactional thing. And so. Uh, and so when when and I think we're just at the precipice. I mean, this is really the tension that we're trying to deal with. I think right now at this point in time, this is what I you know a big part of what I talk about in the book is that when you have employees who experience work like a relationship, and they're still in an environment that treats work like a contract, that does not that that doesn't work. The person that's looking for the relationship and all you're doing is talking like a what have you done for me lately? <laughs> well, of course I'm disengaged and I'm going to go right. look for somebody who's going to treat me better. And so that's at the heart of it. And I think performance management has been where has been where the 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 work as a contract piece has expressed itself most directly and impacts the employee most directly. But it's also where we can have the biggest impact. And that's that's I think the message in the book is we can use performance management to create that experience consistently. Yeah, that's a huge point, Jason. How if we're if if more and more workers are thinking about the relationship between themselves and their employer as more of a bi-directional relationship and and maybe even a more emotional relationship, and you talk about that a little bit in the book as well, then then those those traditional methods whereupon we quote unquote all agreed to keep each other accountable for living up to the contract, uh, those have to change as well, right? Because instead of doing very discreet, very uh, structured, very um, almost punitive kinds of performance management processes, like you did or didn't live up to the terms of your contract. In a relationship scenario, we're coming up with a very different kind of. Uh, we have to come up with some very different kinds of paradigms. So, so as we move forward, right? So we've got, we've got all this history and we've got all this legacy, and that's informed how lots of organizations have thought about uh, the relationship between themselves and their employees, as well as how they structured performance management. As we're now sort of everybody agrees, kind of that's changed a lot. But this, a lot of the performance management practices themselves are, are are slower to change. So I'd love for you to talk about how you looked at that challenge and, and kind of some of the ways you're th you're you're thinking about 
recommending organizations think about performance management going forward in this kind of new world that's much more relationship driven instead of sort of contractually driven? Yeah, the the biggest, I think one of the biggest shifts is, and this is nothing new, I think we've been hearing more about this, but that the the idea of managing performance is not a it's not a transaction it is not a an event it's not a point in time it is a process it's a system and so in the book i talk about replacing right now performance management is largely a set of if you're lucky it's a, it's a a set of multiple events or transactions uh, which is really narrow and very specific, and it's it's uh, one-offs. Whereas a system, I talk about as a system, and a system needs to have, there's a lot of different components that go into that system. So we need to be thinking more broadly about a system that manifests an experience that supports performance or drives performance. And so, you know, the, in that system are a lot of different things. I talk about these kind of, these three processes, and usually we, you know, the, the three, there are three sets of processes, I should say, but it's planning on the front end and planning are things that I think we're at least aware of. We're not always great at, but it's things like expectation setting and goal setting and resource planning, but it's making sure I'm understanding where I'm going and what I need to accomplish or be successful, making sure that's in place. Um, there's then sort of the accountability chunk, which is about making sure that I understand where I'm at and I understand how things are being measured. And I, if I am off, if I'm off course, how we're dealing with that, how we're dealing with it in the context of making sure I can improve my, my output or performance, but also maintaining a healthy relationship. And then there's a piece in the middle that I think has been the big missing piece of performance thus far. I call it cultivation. And that word kind of grew out of my, you know, my experience growing up as a farm kid. But cultivation mm -hmm. is the piece where we're setting the condition for performance to happen. Okay. And I think, you know, I think from a mindset perspective, one of the things that's still built into most of our performance management approaches today is that performance needs to be coerced. It needs to be, mm -hmm. right. it needs to be forced or pushed or 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 uh, made happen in some way. And I think cultivation, a mindset of cultivation is that we recognize that performance is the default position. It's the default setting. People want to succeed. People want to meet their goal. People want to feel successful. Most of the time they're not because we suck at setting conditions to allow that to happen or to support them in making that happen. So cultivation is things like motivation and um, appreciation, inclusion, well-being. It's a bunch of the stuff that we kind of we poke around at, but we haven't thought of as performance. Well, I think too, Jason, along those lines, it's when you, when you're talking about cultivation in that way, when I think about either places I've worked or people I've worked for, or even, you know, places friends work, there are a lot of people out there in business who assume that people are, are there to screw it up. Right. So you're talking <laughs> right. about, I mean, seriously, like you're talking about people want to be successful. I, I'm, a believer in that, right? I think everybody gets up and goes to work thinking, I'm going to hopefully have a good day. I'm going to get some work done. I'm going to, you know what I mean? No one is yep. really coming to work saying, Hey, I hope I can go into work today and really just, you know, screw everything up. Right. But yet it seems like when you actually get into those work scenarios, a lot of leaders kind of look at their teams like, wow, you know, gosh, they're not working hard enough. They're trying to do this. They're trying to make me look bad, you know? So I think it goes back to, I'm wondering 
as you're talking, I'm thinking back to maybe the, you know, when I was at the university studying human resource management and it was like sort of being trained to take the emotion and the relationship out of HR and where it was all about process, all about measurement, it made it very mechanical and robotic. But I wonder if that very thing, the way that, that our generation maybe was trained is what the problem is. Because when you get into the organization and now you're a leader, you make it so mechanical that if someone isn't, you know, if they're not producing enough or they're selling enough or whatever, you're thinking like, instead of thinking like, wow, I wonder what the emotional, you know, engagement uh, issue is behind that versus, no, we're really thinking like, wow, I bet they're screwing up on purpose to make me look bad, to make the company look bad. They're not selling enough because they want to make me look bad. I don't know. Right. I don't know if you agree with that or that was just, as you were talking, that's what I was thinking of. I feel like we've maybe trained ourselves or been trained wrong 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't think it's even just they're doing something to make me look bad. I think it's even, I think it's even worse than that. It's that we look and we just assume that it's some choice they're making to underperform or that right, they're not right. capable or there's some flaw in them. I, we don't even sometimes make it about, I think most leaders don't even make it about them. They just make like, there's something wrong with this person that they're not performing. And in what is in most cases, it's either the system or the leader or something in the relationship that's not right that is causing it it's taking what should be a fairly natural straightforward thing for that employee to accomplish and making it infinitely harder and so they feel like they're that you know it's like well I can see the end I know where I want to get to and I'd really love to get there but my organization put a pit of, of quicksand between me and getting there and so um, I've got to deal with that every day and quicksand mm -hmm. sucks. Um, right. and so, you know what I mean? That's that what I, so I think you're right. I, we, we don't train things like, um, you know, we should be spending, you know, more time teaching people motivational theory and understanding, Absolutely. you know, both extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. We need to teach people, you know, I think one of the things I've been really passionate about um, it, that I, I had been passionate about. And then as I wrote the book and I got deeper into it, I've gotten really passionate about is this, is that well-being is something that is so central and so important, not only to engagement, but to performance. And you know, we, we've been dabbling at wellness and well-being, thinking it's this benefits thing or it's this health thing. Um, but we're, we're coming to realize, and what, what occurred to me as I was doing research for this and writing this up, is that well-being is a performance capacity issue. Is that if I, if I can't pay my bills or provide for my kids financially, I spend a lot of time, emotional time and energy worrying about that and thinking about what am I going to do and all that. And when I have that kind of energy going towards thinking about solving that problem, when I show up at work in the morning, there's a chunk of my capacity that's already right. gone. Right. My, some of my potential is not even available to you. And then, and then pile on that, I, you know, my health isn't very good. And so my energy isn't going to be very good. And then pile on top of that, that my relationship is out of whack. And I'm, I'm feeling like I'm still replaying the fact that, you know, we had this fight last night and, and then pile on. So there's all this stuff. So when, when we have so many of our employees showing up at the door and they're only, they're only bringing with them a capacity to perform at 50 or 60% of their potential before they even get there. Or, and then, and then all of our engagement and performance efforts are trying to maximize this limited capacity that we have. And so 
I think that's, you know, cultivation is, well, how can we as employers then reach out and help, help deal with this? And so that's compensation is a well-being issue. If you, if you're paying a whole bunch of your employees a salary that they can't even, they can't even provide a minimum cost of living or they don't have a cost of living wage going on, you're, you're already destroying performance potential through that. And so that's where the conversation has to change. That's like, um, that's like, you know, back to the farming analogy, that's like a farmer, you know, wanting to save some money. So choosing not to irrigate or not to fertilize their crops and then blaming the seeds for not growing. Right. Stupid. You know, I think too, it's also when you're, when you're talking about that cultivation, I'm thinking that we, we don't attempt to train or talk about empathy, Mm. compassion, because they're they're the softer things they're not measurable maybe but those are the very things too again like you were talking about relationships I remember there was a time where years ago um pretty new in HR and we were um getting ready to let someone go his performance had really you know slipped and in a very significant way and instead of anyone um who worked you know who he worked for talking to him about it well it turns out it was like during his his conversation where we were letting him go he told me he was going through a really horrific, ugly, ugly divorce. Mm. And it was really weighing on him. And I, I just thought, I said, tell And you said to him, Trish, I don't care about your problems, buddy. No, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to be honest. This was a person who I really didn't care for uh, <laughs> because he was very arrogant all the time, years. And, and it happened while I was on maternity leave. And literally the day I came back from maternity leave was when they were going to let him go. And, and we connected on that day Mm -hmm. and at like person to person and it made such a difference. And, you know, he went on to do great things and and it's all fine. But I I just think there's something that we weren't trained and Jason's right. Like you have to have that cultivation. All right. So I have to tell the story. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, cause I don't want to lose this. It's time for story time from Steve, Jason. This this is a performance management story. All right. Here we go. I started a new, uh, this is a number of years ago. I'm going to leave out some of the details, company names, et cetera. I started a new job, new job, a managerial role at a big corporation, organization, et cetera, et cetera. Had a team of eight or nine people or something that I, that I inherited from, from a manager who I believe left the organization to, to relocate, right? So not, not a bad leaving by the prior manager, but just the manager had left, so they hired me to, into that job. On my first or second day at the job, the person who was my boss informed me that I had to have, I had to put one of my employees on a performance improvement plan, right? The, our, mm. our classic, right, HR yep. kind of uh, strategy for and I didn't know I had this person worked in one of the other offices. I had never it was a woman. So I had never met her. I had never seen her and had never spoken to her. Right. I got hired into the job. I was mm. on my second day and they made me do that. I had to literally get her on the phone with our HR. I was in HR, but I, we had our own HR rep as well who sat mm. in there on the call where I had to doc. I had to run through all the things. With, I didn't know anything. I didn't know uh. any of this had happened. I didn't know if any of it was true. I didn't know anybody's side of the story. Yep. And I and I tried to for about the twenty minutes warning I had in advance before this. I was told I had to do this. I tried to say, well, why can't we can't we clean slate it? You know, I just walked in the door. I've never even spoken to her. I feel like this is going to get our little managerial employee relationship off to the wrong start. And it actually certainly did. Like three months later, she resigned and yeah. it went on her way. Ah, Isn't I mean, that sad though? But yeah. that is, and every really part of that story is awful. true. It is. Yeah. Well, and I would say too, in reaction to even Trish, your story, like 
we we put it on the employee, right? It's always like, why didn't you tell someone? It's like, I don't That's know. True. Why didn't somebody ask me? Well, like, it's not exactly. like I've been trying to hide it. You know, you I know mean, what? I'm sure the dude looked miserable. His performance had been I'm suffering sure. for a while. Right. And nobody said, hey, man, are you okay? Yeah. Like, That's what's going they, on? You know what they were worried about, Jason? They were worried about documentation of, of the performance problem. We, we, not right. the actual performance improving for real, like what the what the barriers might be to that. And this is why this is why Jason's book is so good, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tee you up again, Jason. This is why okay. your book is so good because one of the other parts of the book I liked a lot was you get into hey the five typical reasons why people are having a hard time with performance, right? right? And and you talk about them very explicitly, and I feel like that's the first time. I've ever actually seen someone really articulate it, like things like, hey, I'm not really aware of what it means to perform well, or I'm not capable of performing well, or say, I thought I was performing well. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about just, hey, recognizing challenges in employee performance and how managers and organizations can get a little bit better about dealing with that. Yeah. So that I actually started using that framework a number of years ago when I was teaching, when I had to do some management training I think this was even still back when I was in corporate related to engagement, because one of the assumptions about engagement that people have that got us off track is that they, a lot of leaders think that engagement's a kumbaya. We got to, you know, hug it out and everybody just needs to be happy. And they, and they, they think they should stop having tough performance conversations because it's going to make them unhappy and that right. decreases engagement. So that got things screwed up. So I started thinking about this and what, what I, what I realize is it's pretty simple when it comes to performance. If, if you assume that back to my, I guess it starts with the assumption that everybody wants to succeed. Nobody shows up and is like, boy, I hope I, I leave today feeling really terrible about my job or my work or whatever. They want to succeed. They want to. Um... And so when, when someone's underperforming, if you're a manager and someone's underperforming, you know, there's sort of a, a there's some things you can run through that help you diagnose Mm -hmm. very quickly what's going on. The first question is really, you know, do I, do I know what's expected of me? Number one, like, do I even know? Because in, in, and in so many cases, so many cases that it hurts <laughs> me to even think about it. Nobody ever really got clear about what was expected. It's like, well, here's your job description, but nobody told you explicitly, here are the things we're going, there are the ways we're going to evaluate. Yeah. So if I have an employee who's behaving in a way that is driving me insane or is not what I would expect from them. The first question is, well, did I ever, did I ever explicitly communicate that? Because I can't communicate unless I know, but it's like, do I know what's expected? Do I have what I need? Do I have the resources or do I have all, am I equipped yeah. to succeed? Do I, um, so those are the first two easy ones. Those are process questions, really. The third then is, do I know I'm not performing? Cause that's another thing that happens all right. the time. Like yeah, nobody's, you walk into nobody, the performance review meeting and you're what? I'm um, uh, you, you're surprised. You're, you get run over by shocked. a truck, and that's right. why those things suck. Is like, well, if you would have told me six months ago, I would have, I could have changed. I would have done something. Well, once you've satisfied those three things, and I would say that that those three things would resolve. This is unscientific, but I would say that's probably ninety percent of performance issues mm -hmm. are an employee either doesn't know what's expected, doesn't have what they need, or isn't trained appropriately to succeed. It, or doesn't know they're underperforming. That's probably 90% of your issues. The other 10% divides across two other categories. The next category is I'm not capable. Mm -hmm. Am I capable, right? I just don't have, like, got put in a job that's over my head. I'm never going to perform 
um, in this job. I'm just outside of my competence. And then the last one, which is the one, Trish, you alluded to earlier that everybody goes to and assumes is that I am choosing not to perform. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, that happens that's when you are disgruntled so and you're yeah. angry or whatever. And that's like 1% of the time. Yeah, and, and, you've got some, and, you, and you've got some other reason to, to end up there. You don't, yes. No one walks into a job saying, you know, I really don't want to do good at this job. There's some other reason why you feel like you've been exactly. passed over the slight. The boss is a jerk. You're being harassed, maybe a million things. Why? But I will tell you, I think as you're saying that where you're talking about where the 90 percent of, of issues probably really lie. If you were to flip that. And again, my unscientific um, yes. recommendation here would be that the a leader, if you probably surveyed all the leaders only, they would say it's that last one about the person. So they would go to that one or 2% of what is actually out there of people who are specifically saying, I don't want to perform. Right. And they're assuming that. So it's like, how do you, how do you do that? My, my other thing I wanted to point out and Jason, I'd love to know your thoughts on this is, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, does the employee know what's expected? Have they been told what's expected? Okay. Here's the challenge too. For a lot of people who are in mid to upper management, they go into those roles. They're not told what's expected of them yet. Now they, and I've been the they before you're now as the leader expected to somehow articulate to your team what's expected. And you may do that or may not. You may just freeze and not do it because you don't know yourself. Or if you make it up, it may or may not be right. What, what do you, how do you handle that conversation? Maybe if it's a leader company saying, look, well, you know, I can't tell anybody what's expected if I don't know what's expected. So that's, that's a great, great question. And I didn't, I don't specifically address that in the book in terms of like, what should a middle manager do if you find yourself Maybe in that that's situation? The next book. It could be, <laughs> could be, but the simple answer to that is using the same, using the same approach that you use with your people, with your boss. And so instead of it okay. being, you know, how am I going to clarify? Cause one of the things I talk about when I'm talking about goals and expectations is if it matters, write it down. If it's not written down, it doesn't matter that much. And so if, if you hold yourself to that, so then with my, with your boss, if you have a boss or bosses and you're not clear, then I'd say, Hey, I'm, I, based on the conversations I've had, I sat down and outlined what I think I've heard are your expectations of me. And I wanted to make sure that I had that clear. And then I share that with them in writing so that then they either will say, Yep, you got it. Or because usually if you got it wrong, they will react. They will be like, wait, what are you talking about? This isn't even close. And then that'll force a conversation. If you're right on the money, they'll say, um, yep, you got it. If they just if they you know, if they sort of blow you off, at least you have a framework with which that you've sent through them to, to you know, at least get some blessing or some sort of they've seen it, you've yeah. communicated it, you start working. If they blow back on you later, you can go back to that as, as a defense. But I think it's the same practice as, you know, try to articulate it, put it down on paper, take it to them and, and start a conversation about it to increase clarity or increase, um, you know, well, to remove as much uncertainty as you can. And, yeah. and I think that's the best you can do when you have a leader that's not good at communicating. And most leaders are appreciative of that. Right. Um, I think what's hard about that too, though, Jason, is that, you know, at the very beginning of the show, when you were talking, I was thinking, you mentioned that, you know, sometimes we have relationship issues just in our personal life that are, you know, we're bringing to work. I think that in general, we're not always great at relationships with our personal lives. It makes it just even that more difficult to have to expect that we 
or that our team members are going to come to work and have all of a sudden really good ability to open up and, you know, and have those conversations. It's scary. You know, I guess to just acknowledge it is scary. We're not, a lot of us are not great at relationships. We screw it up outside of work all the time. We screw it up inside of work all the time. And so I think that's why the book was really good for me um, in, in reading it because one of the things I think that you do that's maybe different than, again, a lot of other authors I've read, um, and and just to to disclose, like, you've been, like, my personal um, life coach as well as my business life coach for um, almost 10 years. So I think, you know, you the way that you lay it out in the book, though, is, is really helpful because it gives people something they can actually act on. Um, so even if you're someone who feels like, wow, I'm not the best at relationships, whether it's inside or outside of work, I think if they read this, they're going to feel like they can walk away with some steps to take to get better at it. Whereas yeah. sometimes you read a book and you're thinking like, oh, well, that's, I would never do that or I could never do that. I could never have that conversation. So I did like that you laid it out in a way to make people feel like they could actually embrace some of it and, and try it. Thank you for that. Yeah, this we could go on forever and ever. Maybe we should do a follow-up. The book is Unlocking High Performance. The author is Jason Lawrence. And I have one last comment I wouldn't make, though, Tris, about, about the life coach situation. I have personally decided if I ever do hire a life coach, if I ever break down and hire one for myself, you know what the first thing I'm going to ask that life coach to do? What? Punch me directly in the face, just <laughs> as hard as they can. Just bam. Because that's probably what I need the most. Just, just snap out of it. I know? feel like we need to connect you with Joe Gerstan. Have you met Joe? <laughs> will, he, will he punch me? I, have, no, I know Joe. He will not punch you, but okay. he will look like he's going to punch he you when you like ask him to be. He will punch to be, you with his words. Yeah, if you ask him to be your life coach, you will be pretty certain he's going to punch you. Even yeah. though he will not do that, and and, and that's that's probably exactly what I need. But now I'm going to tell you, think uh, back to some very specific conversations year over year with Jason here that um, where I felt like I took a punch, wow. and and it was needed, and it got me to actually do something different in my life, whether it was work or personal. So yeah, you do need those people. I think that's a good. A good point too. You need those people in your life. If you don't have that, if you're afraid of sort of your your question you mentioned earlier, Jason, we talked about am I capable? You know, and so the part that's on you as the individual, if you feel like you're not capable, if you're not capable of either doing your work or having these conversations about your work, get someone who can make you capable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Have someone to help you learn how to have those conversations and to be brave and to try things and and and. And I want to be I want to be clear that uh, I don't think what you're saying is that hey buy Jason's book it'll feel like a punch in the face because that is not what we're going for um, like, like that tagline it, it'll be a bit. nudge okay. it'll be a nudge I'm, I'm, right. I'm not I'm I'm nudging I'm just just poking <laughs> you to go to go the right direction helping okay. you find which way to go yeah exactly. I super uh, highly recommend it won't it. hurt Unlocking high performance Jason Lawrence and this has been really fun. We need to do this again soon. And check out Jason's pods on the network, by the way. They're in the archives. They're called The Human-Friendly Workplace. And I was pretty excited to notice, Jason, a couple of the case studies you write about in the book. I remember listening to as well on The Human-Friendly yep. Workplace pod. So uh, that was really cool, too, and fun. So uh, get it everywhere, Amazon, everywhere else. Uh, J- and you'll see Jason out. Uh, any po- you going to be out doing any more appearances this year, live and in person? Or are we winding it down for 2018, Jason? You know what? Most of the stuff is not uh, – no big conference appearances. Uh, this year, um, right. I'm uh, 
winding down for the holidays, thankfully. Well, I'll be working, but I just won't be out on the conference circuit. All right. Be firing it up next year and see Jason. Absolutely recommend one of the best speakers as well, live and in person. So Jason, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you guys. I so appreciate being here. This is always fun. Yeah. Trish, super fun. So you're going to go back out and enjoy the snow? Is that the plan? You know, I I have a little bit of other work to do, but yes, I am absolutely going to, uh, to go back out in the snow. I think, like I said, the, the plan is build a snowman, probably have more snowball fights, make hot chocolate for the kids, and hang out in the hot tub for at least an hour. <laughs> wow. Right. Watching I, the my... snowfall. My, my afternoon is much less uh, glamorous, so I won't even tell you what, what's shaping up for me. So anyway, thank you, Jason, again. Thank you, Trish McFarland, of course. Thanks to our friends at Virgin Pulse, as always. My name is Steve Bowes. Thank you for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. We will see you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show, your source for information and conversation on work, the workplace, technology, and more. Learn more and listen to all the show archives at www.hrhappyhour.net.